I have to tell you something. No, son, you don't. You're here to repair your future, not mine. This is about I your future. my business. I wish we had more time. No, this was a gift. Now you go and be the man you're meant to be. Welcome to the 26th episode of Zero Hour Strikes, the show that covers DC's 1994 crossover event, Zero Hour Crisis in Time, every issue, every tie-in, every zero issue. I'm Siskoid. I'm Bess. And in this episode, we look at Superboy, Steel, The Ray, and Green Arrow. What do they have in common? They're all new heroes on the scene. What? Even Green Arrow? Yes, even Green Arrow, Bess. <gasps> Such a surprise. And at the same time, we don't really see it. They're playing the long game on that one. But we'll uh, we'll keep that to the end. I mean, we just did Superman. So yep. it makes sense to do a couple of Superman-related books in this first half. And then some disparate heroes that were actually both involved in Zero Hour on the back half. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Right. So we've talked about Superboy before. Uh-huh. So let's just say we're between issues eight and nine of the Kid of Steel's new series. After, of course his premiering in Reign of the Superman, because uh, he was in Smallville during his zero-hour tie-in, remember? Uh, so yep. we'll finally get to cover him in Hawaii with his usual supporting cast. Superboy in Hawaii is like this great point in time, because I remember Superboy in Hawaii, and, and, I, and I dug it. It was cool. So I uh, can't wait to jump into this one. Yeah, I think it was a great setting for him. There was something youthful about you know, the beaches and palm trees and, and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, also it's like a, a corner of the, well, any superhero universe where they, they don't really exploit that much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and it's such a, it should be a pleasure to, to draw also, you mm-hmm. know, instead of always big buildings and, you know, that must be fun. Yeah. So Superboy number zero by Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, Doug Hazelwood, and Dennis Janke. It's called Sidearm One. Superboy Zero. It's a good use of the zero hour, zero issue thing. Superboy is at the Honolulu airport to meet his almost girlfriend, Tana Moon, when he's jumped by Sidearm. Sidearm is defeated, uh, we should say once again, and the kid meets Professor Hamilton in Hawaii on holiday. Superboy agrees to let himself be scanned by the scientist, and they meet up at Star Labs Hawaii later. There, Superboy recalls the events surrounding his cloning and birth at Cadmus Project, his escape and subsequent taking on of the Superman mantle. And on his first patrol, he meets Sidearm for the first time and discovers he doesn't have heat vision, but instead the strange power he'll come to call tactile telekinesis. To thank him for his collaboration, Hamilton gives Superboy X-ray specs to take him closer to that Superman power set, to Tana's consternation. At a prison on the east side of Hawaii, later that evening, a toothsome new villain breaks out. <gasps> but who is it? Did you know who it was? Oh, yeah. I knew who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now, movie star King Shark <laughs> yeah. is, you know, like, is well-known and one of the favorites from the latest Suicide Squad movie. And he's been in the Flash TV show. And, you know, he's, yeah. he's part of popular culture, but... I bet no one who doesn't read the comics realizes that his first appearance was in the Superboy comics. I knew his first appearance was in Superboy because for some odd reason, I looked King Shark up. Was it before Suicide Squad? No, I think it was when I saw him in The Flash. Okay. Because I knew he existed, but I didn't know if he was a Flash villain or a Superman villain or who villain. I don't know. 
And uh, I saw that his first appearance was in Superboy. So when I was reading this one, at the end, I was all like, oh, my God, this is King Shark. We don't really see him. We only see a big toothy smile. Yeah. But uh, I know the next issue is first appearance, you know, first official appearance. Yeah. First full appearance. Yeah. 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 So I was I was all excited. Are my comics worth a fortune yet? <laughs> <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> this was a very fun series and like sidearm. Not the, not necessarily the greatest villain on Earth, but uh, he first appeared on in Superboy number one. And I think all the Superboy villains, like Carl Kiesel really went the extra mile to create new villains for that series. Like Superboy's not getting Superman's cast-offs or anything. It's not like, oh, it's Metallo or it's whoever. You know, it's always very new villains. And all of them are kind of interesting and fun to look at and even sidearm who is a bit of a joke. Well, he's a joke, but he's still a Doc Ock ripoff. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, he has this vest that basically transforms almost anything into arms. I'm guessing (laughs) something like that. I mean, like the first appearance really does look like it's tentacles like Doc Ock. It's interesting. You mentioned that because like these comics kind of give you Spider-Man vibes. Oh, yeah, very much so. Not just Doc Ock, but just the way the kid, I'm calling him the kid because he wasn't called Connell yet, but the way the kid is portrayed, not not that he has like the whole responsibility and, and things are going wrong for him necessarily, but just the vibe of him and the sort of humor of the book. Uh, and yeah. so this, like, this is a Spider-Man villain and like a King Shark. Oh, an animal theme villain? That's Spider-Man. You know, there's a lot of Spider-Man-ness <laughs> yeah. in there, which is funny because... In a few years from this point, there's going to be the DC versus Marvel thing, and they're going to match Superboy versus Spider-Man, because at the time they were both clones. It was the the Scarlet Spider, Spider-Man. Yeah, that's right. They're the ones that went head-to-head, and when they did the, uh, the Amalgam comics, Spider-Man and Superboy got merged into Spider-Boy, and I think they kind of missed a trick there, because they had uh, Spider-Boy working at Cadmus, and then everybody else is amalgamated, but then Doc Ock is like a scientist working at Cadmus who helps out, but he's just oh. Otto Octavius. Like, he's, he hasn't been merged. He's just been turned into a goodie. What if he'd been Sidearm? You know, what if they merged him with Sidearm, which I think would have been... Like, King Shark is merged with the Lizard in that comic. It makes sense. And Doc Ock could have been Sidearm. It just didn't do it. Well, maybe it was too obvious. Like, even in this issue, when we see the flashback to the fight with... The the original fight with Sidearm, Spider-Boy... Spider-Boy. Superboy leaves him on a lamppost with a note on him. That's very Spider-Man. It's very Spider-Man. Yeah. And I mean, the way he fights and talks and everything, it's 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 all very Spider-Man. What did you think of the new introduction here? Because they're showcased on the cover and then they show up at the end. The new goggles, the X-ray specs. Um. Yeah, I can dig it. I, I, I don't mind. It's different. It's bringing them closer to the Superman power set. But it's pushing him apart from the Superman look. So I don't really mind it. They're kind of goofy and they're kind of big and they're kind of, it's cool. Yeah, bug eyes. I don't love the look of them. And I think other artists draw it more badly (laughs) than Tom (laughs) Grummet does. You know, I think like the, like the art in these early issues by Tom Grummet is just excellent. And then later artists, I'm not always too sure. The connection is that he found out he didn't have the vision powers. And so this gives him a bit of a vision power. Uh, And he, of course, he's going to abuse it to look at 
girls in in their underwear because of course he's Superboy. He's a super jerk like Superboy was in the fifties. You're right. It's like a Silver Age updated. Obviously, for some reason, I thought Professor Hamilton when he shows up here would would stay on the cast, but he doesn't. He's just he's just on vacation and he's there to like his big contribution to the first fight is that he uh, he has a robot arm because he lost his arm in in a story. <laughs> Sidearm grabs that arm and puts it on himself and it just merges with the vest. But it's it's just a uh, the, the only thing the arm can do is dispense sunscreen. <laughs> yeah. So that's funny. Yeah, sidearm uh, looks pretty foolish after that. And then he's the excuse, he's, he does the scan. He's the excuse for Superboy telling us his story because it's a zero issue. In this case, even though the series is pretty young, The origin story is a couple years before that, you know, mm-hmm. during the reign of the Superman. So giving us those details about Cadmus, we don't yet know that Lex Luthor is involved in the genetics of this, or we all think it's just Cadmus, and that's what Superboy relates here. He doesn't know. He's got a mixed parentage. Not yet. Yeah, we don't know yet. Do we? No, we no, don't. No, we don't. We know he's part human, but we don't know who's... They say he's all human, but that he was pushed towards as close to Kryptonian as he could be. Like, they turned a human oh. into a, a solar battery. Again, okay. this is going to get retconned, because it, when he's he's half Superman, half Lex Luthor, then you got to, like the comics will have to admit, he's got Kryptonian DNA in there. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this Connor is, uh, well, he's going to be called Connor eventually. But th- this version of Connor isn't as dark as maybe people have seen in... Uh, in at least the Young Justice. I mean, Young Justice, uh, brooding Connor is almost too much. But when uh, Connor joins uh, the Titans in the comics uh, a bit later on, he's like halfway between this Connor and the brooding Connor from the cartoons. We're still at a point where they're creating this character and they're they're giving him like little allusions to the original Superboy. So for example, in this, Tana and Roxy are both kind of after him. You know, the like the journalist yeah. who's sort of Lois Lane and Roxy uh, is his agent's daughter, but she's she's a little more glamorous, a little more like a pretty girl kind of feel. So she's yeah. she's uh, Lana Lang, you know, in the Silver Age when the two girls were fighting over him, over Superman. You know, that's that kind of thing. Or he mentions this. Maybe I should build a super, uh, you know, a super museum. Yeah, that, that's kind of funny. Actually. Which is very a classic arrogant Connell move, but uh, it's a reference to the Legion era. Uh, Superman Museum and Superboy's connection to the Legion, a Legion that no longer exists. So, you know, they're they're like weaving in those ideas that used to be part of the legend and giving them to Connor in a different way. It's always very fun. I love Carl Kiesel's work on this series. I, I know I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I love it. It's a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm really loving it. I, you know, I was looking at all the different goggle types, helmets that he might have picked trying to figure out if they were like references to other things, but I don't think they really are. Although the closest is maybe when there's like this really ugly one that looks like it has got like a magnet. It's, it's part Kirby, but it's also inked as if it were like an image thing, yeah, like X-Force-y, because yeah, yeah. he says, oh, marvelous, not. Probably a dig at Marvel. Mm-hmm. And then the look of it, but it doesn't look like any Marvel character necessarily. There's one that's kind of Cyclopsy, and he says, just call me Cyclops, and he doesn't pick that one. It's also not Cyclops. So they're, there's not like, they're not Easter eggs. I couldn't figure it out uh, either. I mean, I basically pushed it aside thinking 
maybe it's a you know a little a little nod to the maybe new heroes from the 90s or something but maybe. i really couldn't figure it out yeah 50s 60s there's a bit of everything we didn't mention the cover it's your basic superboy breaking through a wall yeah so it's it's pretty cool it's a nice look to the costume i mean we we nicely we see the costume the red gloves the leather uh, jacket he's a cool superboy and we see inside the story how he got the jacket. Like, okay, well, oh, yeah. cover yourself up, you know, because he was born in the costume and so, like, to be like a more incognito. Uh, one of the newsboy legionnaires gives him the jacket, you know, and eventually we know he stitched a, a Superman symbol in the back. But it's supposed to be the, oh, now he looks different because of the red goggles. That's what yeah, it is. Basic. Based on this one issue, I, I think I know the answer, but would you keep reading Superboy? I would definitely keep reading Superboy. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's very fun. I loved it. I read it for a long time. I read that and I read Superboy and the Ravers, which was like his off book, his second book, yeah, his yeah, team yeah. book. I read all of that. So like you, I would keep reading Superboy from this point on if this were my very first issue. So let's look at the next Superman family character, Steel. Oh, yeah. And again, we did cover him in the first half of this project. Like Superboy, he graduated out of Reign of the Superman and is now also between issues eight and nine of his series. Seal number zero is by Louise Simonson, Chris Batista, and Rich Faber. It's called In the Beginning. Uh, it goes like this. A couple of senators are shot at by assassins dressed as armored car guards, and one dies. But the other is saved by Steel. The hitmen are then teleported away by Split of Hazard's Black Ops team, which we saw in the previous issue. John Henry mm -hmm. Irons is then attacked by more superpowered Black Ops members and teleported to their facility, knocked out and strapped naked to a chair. Didn't this happen to Deathstroke as well? When he wakes up, <laughs> he somehow makes his armor appear around himself and is stronger than ever, beats up Black Ops until he forces Split to help him escape. Throughout, we get glimpses into his past, whether through his own memories of his grandfather telling him about the legendary John Henry, or by Black Ops discussing his past at Amertech, building weapons, doing construction work, trying to hide from that life after his inventions are used without his consent, Superman saving him, and then being inspired by the Man of Steel's death to take action. Meanwhile, subplots about a serial killer and White Rabbit returns after her presumed death. What did you think? Well, it's action-packed, that's for sure. I mean, oof, so many things going on, so many punches, so many blasts, so many B-villains. Um, <laughs> uh, really, there, there's a lot of – I mean, we've talked about this last time. I mean, these, these black ops, uh, this team, they're very forgettable. They look like people who just got out of the gym and didn't take a shower. That's basically it. But Steel, all of a sudden, has this armor just appearing all around him, and we don't know why. Ooh, that's uh, that's a new one. So can't wait to see why this happens. <laughs> I can tell you a little bit, but uh, I mean, it's it's a strange thing because he doesn't know. He's the inventor, and he doesn't know why. And I don't feel like he explores that mystery enough. I wonder why that happened. Uh you should be a little more stressed about it. In the next couple of years, he finds out that uh, he can teleport with the armor. So he can, he can jump around himself. And I guess it's possessed by a demon and he has to fight his own armor later. Oh, Anyway, oh. I don't think it's a great storyline. Like anytime you bring in some sort of mystical like demons and whatever in what is very much a tech and science hero story. 
Yeah. I'm not sure it works. And then having the suit possessed and it's like, oh, this is just like, oh, zero issue. We got to change, got to change it up. We got to make steel a little bit different. We got to launch a couple of, uh, of plot lines here because it's the zero issue, but changing him so that somehow now he has insta change and eventually teleportation that he can't even explain himself. That's messy. So yeah, it's messy, but, but this is a messy character. Like, we like Steel. We even watched his movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last issue we read, uh, we wanted to watch the movie, and we actually enjoyed that movie. Exactly. So we like Steel. I like him as a sort of the Iron Man of the DC Universe. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, exactly. But that's the pure concept of it. Like, if he were the Iron Man, and of course, he brings a different baggage as well, because he's a different person. But it's also kind of similar here when you read it. It's like, well, it's it's a little bit like, okay, well, like Iron Man in the movies anyways, or in Armor Wars, like somewhere in the 80s for, for Iron Man, because that wasn't really part of the character all the way through. But the idea that, oh, somebody used my technology to wage war or to, to, to hurt people, and I'm going to take it all back. You know, he did that, uh, Steel. Yeah. So there is a parentage there with Iron Man for sure. But there's also the whole, I feel like maybe that character was not that in the beginning like the first time you see him he, you know he's as a high-rise construction worker yeah. like that doesn't fit the industrialist weapons maker like he's inspired and he builds an armor and you're wondering well how does a construction worker build all this high tech and it kind of feels like it's not necessarily that high tech at the beginning you know so you got the big hammer yeah, and, yeah at that point it's basically armor with jet boots and a hammer yeah it's still more than a construction worker would normally so he's got to have a background, and then they implanted all this other background onto him to make him a viable lead. So I feel like when you're reading this, you're going, well, how, how do these two things get together? So they're saying, oh, well, then he went hit out in Metropolis. You know, he changed jobs. He's, he's trying to be undercover. He's doing construction work, even though he's this super engineer. So he's working below his, his level, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And, and it feels like it was cobbled together. Like, that origin is messy because it, it's got to have all these different things that don't necessarily match. It's, it's not a big problem. I mean, every time we're, we're getting these zero issues, there's sort of an origin story being told. Did you like the way it was done with, like, different people having different elements to tell? I think it was fine. Yeah, I didn't hate it. Thing is, there's just so much stuff going on. I mean, somebody's getting punched or flying off or being carried or, you know, in every page. I mean, this is action-packed. Almost too much. I like the way, because we, we had a, a Batman issue that was kind of like that also, where uh, different point of views were right. talking about Batman, and I kind of enjoy that. It's a, it's a way to go. It feels like a movie almost, so yeah, I I, I don't hate it. Um, you like it more than Shellshock. Like, this is a character <laughs> unimpressed with the origin story. She says, that's it? Uh, and I would say, Louise Simonson, maybe not do that. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a self-own where you're, yeah. where you have a character saying, that's the origin? Really? And it's like, well, don't put these thoughts into the heads of the readers. Like, they've, yeah. they've got to like it. Like, I think the best part of the origin for me is not the stuff that's just repeating what we already know from Reign of the Superman uh, and the early issues of this of this series. It's the bit at the beginning where his grandfather's telling him about the historical and slash legendary John Henry, who yeah. built the railroad, helped build the railroad. He was named after that that person. 
And also seeing that, that John is working on a car. It's like, well, you anything you want to put your mind to, you can achieve. And right now he's just working on an old car, an old junker. And eventually he'll become a super engineer. I wish we'd seen more of that, maybe like his upbringing that what brought him to that point. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, You know what's one thing I, I, I kind of felt sucked a little bit? They show the old armor and it looks better than the new one. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's not that the new armor isn't good. I like the two-toned metal thing, and, you know, that's fine. But the big S isn't there anymore. They could have kept something of an S. I mean, his name is still Steel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, why not? Why not make him part of the Superman family, even if he is human? And visually. And it's like one of the things as well in that shot, he's got the big hammer, which takes us back to... You know, John Henry building the railroad. And in the series, he doesn't really use that. No, no. Well, the hammer's gone. I mean, he he, he still pops rivets there. Yeah. But uh, the, the hammer's gone. I love the hammer. I mean, that hammer had potential to be something more than just a hammer. I mean, can you imagine an nth metal hammer? You know, a super-powered Kryptonian tech hammer or something like that. It just got rid of the hammer. Yeah. I, he has it on the cover. So I, I think he still uses it on occasion, but it really should be. It's so iconic that he should be using it all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, if you see a big red cape, you think Superman. If you see a big red cape and a hammer... You think Thor. <laughs> You think Thor, but if it's a bigger metal hammer, you think steel. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of do think Thor, I guess. Maybe there was a lawsuit involved. Look at the cover. I mean, if you you want to sue DC, look at that cover. It even looks like there's lightning striking the thing. So, Yeah, really. (laughs) It really is a Thor shot. You know what I say? Make the hammer bigger. And batter. I mean, if you're not going to call it Mjolnir, might as well make it a badass hammer. Yeah, it's got a longer shaft, so that's uh, that's how you know. I think steel is up, should be up for some kind of reinvention. There's a multiverse thing going on right now, and I think that steel should make a big-ass comeback, because I love that character. I hope he comes back and he's part of the Superman family, because, uh, I mean, he's there's so much heart in that character. It's a great character. Was it a good series? Based on this one issue... Know. Would you have kept reading Steel? I would have kept reading Steel because I really did like the last one. This one is okay, and I would at least give it a shot. Okay. I'm going to say that based on this, I hate these villains. They've been appearing twice now. I don't like them. It's just 90s dullness. <laughs> so there's yeah. there's nothing here to keep me on. I think I would not be reading Steel going forward. Oh, well, that's sad. In reality, I did, but not for long. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Ray and Green Arrow. Stick around. You said I was a liar. I'm not. People think you are good, but you are bad and hard-hearted. I'll let everyone know what you have done. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. To marry you would kill me. I'm a badass woman. What's wrong with that? Can't hold me Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast. 
Join me, Stella, as I look at the legacy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. TV, film, radio, theater, sci-fi, er erotica? Pun intended. Does Jane Eyre transcend culture, time, place, and galaxy? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can't ignore, you can't ignore no more. I'm a bad woman. We're back and continuing our discussion of Zero Issues starring some of DC's new kids on the block. So who's next? The Ray. The Ray. Well, he appeared in Zero Hour itself. Uh, we saw him meet Martian Manhunter in, I'm thinking, a Justice League tie-in now. It's been a while. Yeah. But his book did not directly tie into the event, so I guess... I get to ask you what you already knew of the Ray and if you had any history with this character. Um, only thing I knew about the Ray was he's a, a very old character. He's a Golden Age character, isn't he? Well, the original one. So uh, we're seeing basically the legacy of the Ray. I don't know much about him. I didn't know what his power sets was. I, I know he flies and he shoots rays, um, <laughs> but that's pretty much it. Well, he was part of DC's push in the early 90s to do something with the Freedom Fighters uh, or the Freedom Fighter IP. They had a minor hit with the Ray miniseries, probably because of the Jokasada art. And this led to this series. And DC also tried with a new uh, Black Condor series, a Vertigo Uncle Sam miniseries by Alex Ross. And Human Bomb appeared in Damage. So I guess, you know, that that was his bit. Dollman, never. They never talk about Dollman. So <laughs> anyway, this Ray is the son of the original Golden Age hero, told from infancy that he was allergic to sunlight. So he grew up in darkness. His parents were just trying to keep him safe from powers he probably couldn't have controlled as a child. At 18, he comes of age and is told what the deal is by his father's ghost. That was, that's what it seems like. Uh, a ray made of living light kind of hangs around in the miniseries, I mean. After the miniseries, the ray joins the Justice League. And in 1994, he gets his own monthly series. It will last 28 issues. We're currently between issues five and six. So some of this is retold in the issue itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ray Number Zero by Christopher Priest, Howard Porter, and Robert Jones. It's called Missing. The Martian Manhunter struggles to save a child trapped in the wreckage of the Justice League's New York embassy. Uh, when he's done, the original Ray contacts him angry that his son was manipulated into joining the JLA and asking where his son is. John doesn't know. The Ray next visits his son's entire supporting cast, and girlfriend Jenny is the only one with a lead, i.e. Ray's journal on his computer. Reeling from seeing his mother alive and well, and I guess the previous issue, he started hallucinating his father's life. He somehow recalls how the original Ray stole him as a baby and put him up uh, with his uncle, telling his wife... Uh, he had been stillborn to spare her the very good possibility the infant would not survive long. Ray figures his dad sent him those memories via light beam to make him empathize, but he's sick of his manipulation. Now he wants his dad to tell his mom he's still alive, but Happy Terrell, the original Ray, refuses, and young Ray leaves angry. And pretty angry, but because I think we don't see the mother or or even... We don't even see the older Ray for a while. I mean, you can't blame him. That's a pretty tragic childhood. They really went out of their way to make the Golden Age Ray 
or a jerk. And even off the bat, not just in in the new rays, in, not just in his mind or this weird ass hallucination he's having, but just the way he interacts with the Martian Manhunter. We have these great shots of uh, John Jones just doing his thing, uh, trying to save a child. You know, we see the Martian vision. That's cool. We haven't seen that in a while. He calls Martian Manhunter alien. He's always calling him alien. And it gives the old Ray this, I don't know, racist vibe. (laughs) There's something wrong with him in the sense that, like, he thinks the Justice League manipulated or forced young Ray into joining. And it's it's more innate of, oh, I was the mentor and now I'm no longer the mentor because these other heroes have taken him under their wing. And made him part of the community and made him do stuff like, you know, fight for the universe in zero hour, among other things. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, and I'm angry and upset about that because I've lost my hold on this son that I only sort of raised from afar through my brother and other interventions. I, I understand like the original thought that. Okay, my baby is going to have light powers like me. He's dangerous. He could be shooting lasers at nannies. You know, <laughs> he could just destroy yeah, yeah. everything. So we can't let him be in the light because the light is what gives. I think like the original Ray, would, if you put him in darkness, you zapped his powers, basically. So he, okay. he needed light. And so the baby is going to be the same. And I don't want my baby... To destroy, you know, destroy the house or hurt people or blow our cover. Like I'm having, I've had this marriage to take care of at this point. So I get it. You know, he gives them to his brother. He's probably still visiting, you know, as a light beam, at least. He's following up. So all the lies he told at the beginning were to protect people and protect their feelings. But then now Ray went out into the light and he's not dangerous. He's got powers that he controls. So how about you stop the whole manipulation thing and let him live his life and, you know, I don't know, act like a normal father or whatever, but... Or at least a mentor. Something. So don't go and fight the Martian Manhunter. You know, so it feels like a bit of a a takedown of that original character. I don't know. He's, He's off his rocker. Yeah, something's not right with his heart. No. You've got that heavy angst stuff because you got a young hero, but there's a lot of nice humor, especially in the part with John. He's obviously not human, and the kid he's saving is going, you know, what's you're green? It's like it's acne, you know. He's saying he's giving like these <laughs> weird excuses that that wouldn't never fly. But I mean, we're a while after Wahaha Justice League, but he's still got that that deadpan humor going for him. And I love the bit where like the Ray is talking into his head using light pulses against his tympanic membranes or whatever. It's not real telepathy. This is telepathy. And it's like a great use of big letters or sort of become the effect. And you see the ray appearing because he's invisible at that point. You sort of see a shadow. I love that panel. Yeah, that was great. So I like the humor of this. And then as we get into the ray's origin, there's less humor because it's about a terrible thing that a parent did to his child. And keeps on doing it i mean at the end there the way his dad just pushed him away at the end that i mean that was horrible that was heartbreaking you know he like he goes to the house and his mother's there and it's like and he tells his dad i don't want to tell her you're gonna tell her this is the mess you made and this is the mess you're gonna clean up so i'm not the yeah. one that's gonna have the the weird reaction from mom you're gonna tell her what you did and then you're gonna introduce me 
And he refuses to do that. He won't tip his life upside down for this kid. Relatable. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah. As people know from the last episode, relatable. Like instead of a beginning, which is a zero issue, we get all the origin story, but that's like, okay, now the story's been told. This was the truth of his upbringing and all of that. And then they set it aside because he doesn't appear for, you know, in the short term, the Ray doesn't appear. There's even like a time travel story where he meets the original Ray in his youth. Okay. But we don't come back to the adult older Ray until much later. So this is kind of saying, this is closure. It's not closure because like he refuses to uh, introduce him to his mother, but it's closure on this on this chapter of it. I don't think it's closure. I think it's closing the book mm. without the closure. I mean, I guess it's kind of closure. I mean, you decide if you have closure or not, but it's much more brutal than closure. You know, it's... I think it's the kind of closure that you get at whatever, 18 or 19 or however old he is now, which is, no, this is going to be a trauma. It's gonna, He's going to have... Yeah. Problems, relationship problems, bitterness, anger for a good while yet. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Before he lets go of that. I uh, want to bring us to page 11. You know when you go to someone's house and they're not there and you sit mm-hmm. in their recently drawn bath? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fully clothed. This is an odd moment. This is uh, Black Canary's bath. You know, oh, okay. they had a short-lived romance during the Justice League, maybe? I don't know, but... In this, I mean, she's going to co-star in this book for a few issues as well. So maybe that's... So they've had a relationship. And judging from the fact that Green Arrow is supposed to be like 49 or something, Black Canary can't be much younger. This is a spring-autumn romance. High five to Ray. Well, maybe high five to Black Canary. Oh, oh, no, no. She's... uh, I mean, she could get anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's more of a thing that the Ray managed it. Well done, Ray. Yeah, the art here is by uh, Howard Porter, who would do the JLA book with Grant Morrison. Okay. But uh, not, I'm not sure Robert Jones is the best inker for him. It's a little bit scratchy. Yeah, it is. And I think Howard Porter works better when it looks glossy, the, the JLA look. But still, I think he's got a couple of money shots. I love the, the moment where page 18, where he comes into his power, he's, he calls his power, it looks like. Oh, yeah, that's a great panel. Well, even like the, that opening page with uh, Martian Manager shooting his beam uh, out of oh, his yeah. eyes. Looks good. And also the cover. I mean, did you like this cover? I love this cover. This character looks incredible. The color scheme, he doesn't look like a bee, but he's black and yellow and he looks badass. I mean, we talked about the panel on page 18, but the the money shot of, of Ray shooting up uh, flying on page 19 is quite incredible. It looks a lot like the cover, actually. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the cover. I mean, this is a cover that pops out. I would have bought this just for the cover, actually. Sure, yeah. And I like the way it's like, you know, like the jacket or what What uh, his mom or whatever thought was a uh, like a, a Michael Jackson jacket or something. Michael Jackson or a band, band camp or something. It looks like like it's so hot that it's yeah. kind of going mirage, you know, like the way the jacket, the jacket is just like yeah. very loosey-goosey, kind of painterly lines. And so it looks like uh, like a heat haze over the character, the way we're seeing him there. I mean, he looks so powerful. It's incredible. Just, I think that this character just looks great. So let me ask you this. 
would you, based on this one issue, and I guess it's the only one you've read anyways, <laughs> would you keep reading The Ray? You know what? I probably would have picked up a couple issues. I don't know where it's heading, but it's very, very, very angsty. I don't know if I would have been into that much angst and rage in 94. I had my own rage, you know, so <laughs> I, I didn't need somebody else's. I think based on how cool I think this character is, I would have. It really would have depended on how how great this story was. I think after this, you get some Black Canary in there. You get some, So you might have stuck around for that. Yeah, I think I would have. I would say that based on this issue, yes, I would. There is the whole thing. With, I love Golden Age characters and their legacies. So you might have expected me to keep reading at this point. That's it. <laughs> Green Arrow uh, is Ooh. our next and last book. He was important to the Zero Hour finale. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And when we last saw him, he was walking away from other heroes, disappointed and dejected. Uh, in his own book, we saw him both die and not die. Uh, so clearly, he was at the end of his rope as a hero and as a franchise. So where do we go from here? Well, Green Arrow number zero by Kelly Puckett, Jim Aparo, and Jerry Fernandez. It's called Cast Upon the Waters. After the events of Zero Hour, Oliver Queen gives up on being Green Arrow. He throws everything into the ocean and even gets rid of his facial hair. He gets rid of everything except one bow he had in storage that forgotten about and is reminded of the monk who gave it to him. So he drives up to the uh, ashram monastery that once helped him out of a crisis of conscience, but crashes his car on the way. So he needs to recuperate once he gets there. He stays for a few months. He meets a young monk called Connor Hawk who idolizes him and there's an archery test and so on. What Ollie doesn't know is that the NSA fears he's about to crack and they send a hit squad after him. Only with Connor's help is he able to fend off their assassination attempt and together they leave the monastery to settle things. Let's look at the cover first, I guess, because this is sort of a preview of what's going to happen. It's a cover by Rick Burchett, who, uh, mm -hmm. who did not do the interiors. The classic Green Arrow's in the back. The modern-day Green Arrow, more like uh, with the hood, is in the middle. And then facing front to us and shooting us is the future Green Arrow, who does not actually appear wholesale in this issue. I think the cover looks great, but it's kind of confusing because they're both blonde. Even though Connor's features are kind of different inside the book, uh, the cover kind of lets us think that this might all be the same guy. Yeah. Once you read it, um, you might start to understand that this is going to be like we're being introduced to a new archer and this yeah. is him. But the Connor Hawk on the cover, is the, this is a problem that Connor Hawk has had across his lifetime is that he is part black, part Asian, part white. And in the book itself, he has a very golden-skinned complexion. He, he looks, let's say, Asian yeah. in that. But he's bald because he's a monk. So once he has his hair out, okay, the hair is blonde because his dad was blonde. Okay, we, I, I get it. But then they tend to give him a white skin complexion. And this is a problem that, that this character has had and that you know people who are looking for diversity have had is that this is a character that is not white or is, you know has a white parentage in there, but he's not white. The more we go, the more he's presented as white. So he's, he's been yeah. whitewashed. Literally. 
Yeah, and sometimes it's just maybe like a coloring error. Like the colorist doesn't know. It's like a blonde guy. He's the son of Green Arrow. Well, he's gonna. That's what he's gonna look like. But he gets progressively lighter skinned. So yeah, that's kind of my problem with the the cover. It's fine. It's not the best cover I've seen. It's okay. I probably like it more than you do. I think you do. I like Rick Burchett. Him and and the writer here, Kelly Puckett, did a lot of uh, animated Batman comics. Okay. So I like that. They're really taking the slow road on this is the thing. You know, it's like when you're reading this, okay, Green Arrow's at the end of his career. He's giving up, but we don't know he's given up. You know, he's still in the picture. And rather than do it all in the zero issue and tell us, like in the zero issue, change of the guard. They're teasing it out and it's going to take a few more issues for Connor Hawk to take the mantle. You know, and in fact, Oliver Queen to appear to die. We will learn, you know, we don't even learn here in this, I mean, we can guess that Connor's <laughs> mother was also at that monastery. Then she and Ollie had an affair. Connor knows Green Arrow is his father, but Ollie doesn't know that this is his son. They leave the, the monastery together. He's killed in an explosion, attempting to save Metropolis from a terrorist group that was trying to detonate a mutagenic bomb. His body is never found, which sets him up to return in the 2000s. However, Connor will become the new Green Arrow, basically taking the book over from number 91 to number 137, during which time he's also a member of the JLA. You might have seen him there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he co-stars with Dear Old Dad in the new Green Arrow series for uh, that comes out in the 2000s for most of its 75 issues. And since the mid-2000s, he's been a peripheral character, wasn't in the new 52, but he started getting appearances, not that we're in the Infinite Frontier era. So I didn't want to precipitate things earlier, but do you have any kind of history with Connor Hawk? I really don't. I know he existed, but I really don't know him. Uh, I'm kind of glad to see he's he has a different origin than you know his predecessor. He's he's a monk. Usually these <laughs> usually these uh, uh, origin stories end up being a villain origin story. You know, idolizing a hero. You meet your hero. He's a jerk. You don't like him. You become a uh, a villain. I, I guess this is not what happens. I really don't hate the, the passing of the baton. Uh, you know, it's a relay thing, uh, and and I don't hate it. It's another way of doing this thing. I really knew nothing of Connor Hawk. Other than, you know, cool name. But you've seen him in JLA. You read JLA, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, yeah, Because he's got that, that nice one where he's introduced and uh, he fights the key. Yeah, yeah. I love, like, uh, Archer stories where they're they're just like, like, this guy, he's got a skill, but no powers, and he's really out of his depth compared to the other heroes. But then he's always stuck alone <laughs> to, to do the job. Yeah. Uh, and then succeeds. I mean, Hawkeye is a story like that against the Collector that I talk about all the time. So, the same thing with that JLA two-parters like issues six and seven i want to say uh where he's alone in the jla satellite or the watchtower uh against the key and all the heroes are in they're all in alternate realities or virtual realities so yeah for me connor was i mean i wasn't reading green arrow at the time and then i picked up a few issues with connor hawk in them like he crossed over with uh, green lantern for example so i I might have gotten that you know that kind of stuff did you enjoy him was it I like legacy heroes, and I thought this was a good legacy character. Oliver Queen has so often been portrayed as a jerk that you can't help but like the new Green Arrow. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he's living in a world where there's a new Flash and a new Green Lantern as well. So it's like like all these, these new kids 
who have made good, you know, taking on these important mantles. Yeah. It's it's fun to see them work together. And usually when they kind of crossed over with one another, uh, that's when I would pick it up. But I wasn't necessarily invested in his storylines because I don't remember any of them. This issue itself, because you haven't really talked about it, I, I don't like to, to bash on uh, Jim Aparo because we at this point, I mean, this is the 90s. At this point, his eyesight was failing. And yeah. I mean, it'd been failing for a while. But I don't dislike the art. And I don't even blame him for it. I think maybe there's a problem with in this, the plotting of it. Because I find some sequences very confusing. Like the car wreck. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to believe the car was sabotaged by the NSA? Which doesn't seem to be a very efficient way to... It's like suddenly there's, the car is crashed and he's got blood on him. And there's no... We don't see the crash is the problem. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. It's like, what, what, what just happened? And all the stuff where the... I don't get that where there's the archery test. I did not understand what the test was. They're, they're saying like the test is to be... It's a test of spirit, really, because... They're all great sharpshooters. What we're seeing, and I don't know that that's what we're seeing, we see the arrows fly, but then the arrows are still in the people's hands. So is this like in um, that Chinese movie Hero where they have a battle, you know, like the guys playing the guitar and- They have a battle in their head, yeah. And once they've decided in their heads who won, a guy admits defeat. <laughs> but is, it, is that what's happening? Because it's not clear to me that it is. I mean, it's not clear. And if it's that kind of spiritual type uh, contest, we don't even see like a change in color or setting or decor or it's just weird. It's like, like they do a big thing with the with Green Arrow himself. He doesn't want to touch a bow again. Yeah. He helps Connor out, but he's not gonna. And then he says, "Oh, give me the uh, give me the bow." You see him stretch the string facing us it zooms out and we see how far the uh the target is and the target seems to have a little arrow in it yeah at that point if that's what that is and then the monks are shocked they're going oh wow and then we see ollie again he still has a an arrow yeah. in his hand and he didn't have a quiver so he was given a, a bow and one arrow so they're still in his hand and then he walks away and i don't know how to interpret that scene necessarily. Yeah. Something similar happened with Connor, but they keep saying that Connor isn't ready, that he's just shooting arrows normally very well, but he's not zen about it. So I, I just don't know how to understand this. I mean, like the, all the layouts are very Kelly Puckett and that he does a lot with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. I'm just not sure then that the art is that clear on some of those sequences. I'm right there with you. Even the fight scene with the two guys with the guns, some of them are shaky and it's just unclear. Uh, Let's just say it's not fluid. If this was camera work for a movie, the camera's just all over the place. We're kind of getting confused in the setting. We have trees. Thank God we have trees somewhere uh, so we can at least pinpoint our attention to something. It lacks fluidity. That's what I'd say. For a monk setting, it lacks fluidity. Oh, it's it's not enough like uh, Ollie's Japanese garden. No, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 yeah. It needs to be more fluid. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. I agree. There's uh, other panels that I might point to to say that what's happening in there. What's, uh, what, <laughs> and, what is it? And is it just me or did the kung fu? The old TV series Kung Fu, the theme song from Kung Fu come in my head with that last panel where Ollie and Connor are just walking into the into the mountains. 
I will admit to never oh. having seen oh. any of that. No. Ah, uh, much for you to learn, Grasshopper. You know, I know that line, and obviously I've seen so much Kung Fu stuff that whenever Americans do it, and on a TV budget, that's just setting myself up for disappointment. Oh, oh no, you're disappointed right now, you don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is an interesting thing here that we're, you know, that Connor Hawk is a great martial artist, so mm-hmm. that's uh, something else that he brings to the role that, that Ollie, I'm not saying Ollie doesn't have any hand-to-hand fighting experience, but we're being promised uh, some a different kind of action. I, I think Connor's uh, very promising as Green Arrow. And the only other note I had here is that the uh, story of the first man Ollie killed, like the first time he went to this monastery, actually is a thing. He killed a sniper and he subsequently goes to a retreat to this monastery. It's in uh, backup stories in Flash number 217 to 219 back in 1973. Oh, wow. If he was at the beginning of his career, then Connor Hawk can have been born and become an adult is the important thing. So I guess the question is, based on this one issue, would you keep reading Connor Hawk as the Green Arrow? Would you keep reading this series? I'm not really sure. It's not that I don't like Connor Hawk at all. I think he, he, he looks great, and I think I'd like to know more about him. But I think this is a very slow start to his journey, and I'm not sure I would have been uh, into it. Probably somebody that really loved it would have had to convince me to buy it or read it off him. Just on this book, I'd probably say no. I didn't pick up the Zero issue back then, so that cut me off from the next phase. You know, if I'd picked this up, yeah, I think I would have kept reading it, you know, just based on, okay, like, okay, this is a fresh start, and I don't have to have any of this Oliver Queen nonsense, or at least not for long. But I missed the zero issue. In other words, I think that if I was back in time, buying this issue, reading it, that probably means I'm going to see it through to the point where he becomes Green Arrow, and then make my decision. I can see you do that. So we'll take another promo break, and when we come back, your letters lost in time. Your letters lost in time. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Letters lost in time. Letters lost in time. Letters lost in time. Excerpts from your comments on our coverage of the Superman Zero issues. Well... Toy expert Chris Franklin confirms the Captain Action packaging uh, (laughs) that we noticed. Uh, And also on Conduit, he says, he was all over the Superman, the Man of Steel action figure line from Kenner that was hitting shortly after this. DC and the Super Office really seemed to think he was going to be a villain for the ages, but not so much. I think his intense obsession with Clark was good for this story arc, and that's about it. Hmm. Diablo Frank remembers the action figure, too. He says, Omega Yellow got power action cables and a removable mask, plus a trading card with painted Joe Jusco art. You were already entering the modern period of everybody gets a figure, but that was far more true of Marvel than DC outside of Batman the Animated Series. Hush 0.5 story was lame, but the toy was nifty. I still feel like his once rarefied status deserves some kind of consideration. I do think the design is nice enough and the origin really was proto-Smallville. Agree, though, that his motivation was total nonsense and he either had to learn Clark's secret or, well, 
what actually happened. It died. Uh, <laughs> another problem is that Superman was already well-stocked with cyborg foes, and combining that with kryptonite powers calls into question why Metallo was allowed to carry on with his shtick. Hey, that's a good point. David S. Gutierrez says, what a deep dive into the inner workings of Siskoid's past. I wonder if Siskoid and I crossed paths when he was in Texas. Maybe I'm his conduit, or maybe he's mine. <laughs> David lived in El Paso. I never went that far west. I would say no. <laughs> so we don't even have to ask the question as to who is whose conduit. Jeff R. says, conduit is mostly a victim of his own storytelling logic. As mentioned, the next thing to do with him is to have him realize Clark Kent is Superman, and at that point, the second story can't end with him alive, Bronze Age Amnesia being off the table. Him having a bit of a death wish built in doesn't help either. Rob McCarthy says, My dad, ever the amused bystander to comic plots, made this point. His name should be Kenneth. Nobody's scared of Kenny. <laughs> That's true. Captain Entropy says, I didn't appreciate the government employees are evil theme that ran through many DC comics in the 90s. Well, you know, that ran through everything because, you know, there was no Cold War. We'd lost like the like the foreign enemy. So it's like X-Files, you know, like the it's all government conspiracies. Yeah. In the 90s. Uh, he says, more importantly, Conduit's motivation never held up to scrutiny. A guy like that would eventually, or maybe immediately, figure out his dad was the problem, not Clark. <laughs> Does anyone like Conduit? That's <laughs> the question we should ask. I think, uh, I think the answer is no. Well, oh, what about Michael Bailey? He says, Conduit, to me, is a fascinating villain because he was created for a purpose, he served that purpose, and then they killed him off. He could have easily become a reoccurring thorn in Superman's side, but they chose to give him some closure, and that appeals to me. He wasn't the deepest villain as you ended up uh, hating his father, especially in the death of Clark Kent, where Superman tells him that his son is dead, and his dad essentially uses that as one more opportunity to call his son a loser. Nice guy. Uh, in an era where companies were looking for the next hot villain, the Superman crew said, this one has a shelf life. Neat. As far as uh, being created for a purpose and, and serving that purpose and then being dismissed, uh, yeah, I think it's it's kind of refreshing to see that. But then again, if you're going to create a character, we don't like disposable characters, do we? I'm not a fan. You and Bailey fight it out. <laughs> On that note, we have to mention that the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page. So if you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. Get on the zero list at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, just like these fine folks did. They got on the zero list. That means they are going to escape the cataclysmic time wave that's still coming from both ends of history. Jim Bow has been saved from Camelot. So gone, gone, the form of Jim. David Capoon has been saved from Suicide Slum and given a new lease on life. Michael Bailey has been saved from the Space Museum while he was being chased by Skeets. And Diablo Frank has been saved from whatever the heck dimension Stalker is supposed to be from. A reminder that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, follow the Fire and Water's Facebook page, or on Twitter. The account is FWPodcast. Uh, you might also want to subscribe to the show on Spotify. Next time on Zero Hour Strikes, the Justice League titles. <laughs> <laughs>